Amen. Please be seated. And if you have your copy of God's Word with you, please turn with me to the book of Genesis. This morning we will continue our look at the consequences of the fall by focusing our attention on verses 20 through 24. You can also find a copy of our text for this morning and the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's passage. If you were with us last week, you may remember me saying that Genesis 3, especially verses 14 and 15, are some of the most important words in all of Scripture. For as God delivers His judgment for the sin of Adam and Eve... He does not kill them as they deserve. He does not take from them that which they were uniquely called to do. Instead, He is gracious. And yet, where He is completely just and swift in action, as in His rebuke of Satan. And from here forward, we will look back to this text and ask ourselves, when will its fulfillment come? When will we see that which has been promised? And so, because God did not give us a time stamp, as we said, every moment from here forward, we will look back asking, is it here? Has it happened yet? Is he the one? Are they the one? Has this time come? Just as they would have, as Adam and Eve had children, and their children had children, and their children had children. Each generation would look if they were walking with the Lord to see this promise fulfilled. But before we even get out of the garden and start down that path of searching and looking, we see that God provides for Adam and Eve even more so than just keeping them alive. We noted last week that this is a a, a key fulfillment or promise um, by God to, to keep their life or sustain their life. But He does even more than that. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. So I invite you to look with me as we... Um, spend some time in God's Word. I do want to go back just a few verses for the sake of context. Uh, This morning, I will begin reading from Genesis chapter 3. I want to start in verse 14, and I will go to the end of the chapter. Please follow along. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the day of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust." And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. He has promised to us it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us go to him now in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, be with us now in this hour. Through your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we not only see and hear your word, that we re- but that we receive its truth, that it penetrates joint and marrow, that it changes and transforms our lives, our conduct, our actions, our thoughts. Help us to see you today from this text. May we find the truth of your word precious. I pray that you do all of these things for your glory and your namesake. We pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. At this point in the biblical narrative, it would be very understandable for Adam and Eve to fall into despair. They have sinned against God who placed them into this perfect, beautiful garden and given them life. They listened to Satan instead of God, and as they're realizing it, was the wrong decision. And now, they have received consequence for their action. They will struggle to carry out the very things that God has called them and equipped them to do for the rest of their lives. We would understand it at this point, if they question God. Will he be good to us still? Are we left to do everything on our own? Have we completely messed up our lives? But the story does not let these questions linger. They don't have an opportunity to ask because God answers it before they even get the chance. And this is just to show the God that we serve. Adam and Eve would have been right to ask these things, and yet God immediately responds, showing that he is a God of mercy. In fact, God is a God who dwells and cares for sinners just as much as he dwelt with and cared for sinless man. And this is good news for all of us today, because in case you don't know it, we're all sinners. And the fact that God still cares for people like you and me is such a blessing. It's so wonderful to know that he did not abandon man when they were sent from the garden. As we look at this passage this morning, I want you to see three different ways that God provides for sinful man. Post-garden, post-judgment, 
Sin has entered into the world, and yet we see three clear ways that God provides immediately for mankind. And as we think about that in the context of Adam and Eve, I want you to realize that God is still providing for you in this way today. Here we are many, many, many years later, and God is still providing these things for sinful man as we continue to wander outside of the garden. First, I want us to see that faith in God overcomes the doom of the curse. We're going to find that in verse 21. Or verse 20, excuse me. Secondly, we will see that God's grace covers the sinner's shame in verse 21. And then thirdly, God protects man by preventing the extension of life. And we'll find that in 22 through 24. So faith in God overcomes the doom of the curse. God's grace covers the sinner's shame. And then God protects man by preventing the extension of life. In light of each of these points, let's begin by seeing how faith plays a key part in God's provision over Adam and Eve. At first glance, this verse may not seem to have much to do with faith or God's provision. I mean, God's not even mentioned in it. His name does not appear. However, there are three major factors we need to look at to appreciate what is being said. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all living. Three factors that we need to understand to fully appreciate the beauty of this verse. First, we need to recognize this verse immediately follows God's declaration of punishment and sin. It's why we read the broader context this morning. This is taking place moments after God's judgment. Why is this important? Well, Adam and Eve have received the most devastating news possible. They've been tricked and followed the lie, and yet they do not pout, they do not give up, they do not turn away. Instead, what we see is this beautiful moment where Adam gives a name to his wife. He calls her Eve. This leads to our second point from this text. If you look back to Genesis 2.19, we find God tasked Adam with naming all of the creatures. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and birds of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. God trusted Adam enough to let whatever name he gave the creatures be its name. Now, you don't really appreciate this unless you try to do it. So try it. Think of 20 animals in your head. 10, 5, have your pick. And come up with a unique name that will somehow encapsulate what they are and know that what you name it, that will be it for all eternity. It's a little daunting, isn't it? And I encourage you um, this afternoon or when you get home with your kids, this is kind of a fun assignment to do. Um, have them just draw out animals and then start naming them. And just remember, whatever you do sticks. Um, it's a bit um, overwhelming. Wouldn't it be hard? And yet God gifted Adam in such a way he was able to do that task well. But that was pre-sin Adam. That was before the fall. That was before he was, he was corrupted. 
So we would assume that there would be a shift in his ability to think and his ability to act and his ability to carry things out, right? You would expect sin, as wicked and awful as it is, once it gets in there, to start changing things up. And yet, what is the very first thing that Adam does post-judgment from God? He carries out his task. He finishes the naming. Now, this is a double name. He, he's already named her woman, um, but this is a double blessing. It's an extra honor he gives to Eve. And here, he, he declares who she is. And it's a good name, Eve. It's not a, a hip name that uses alternate letters to make a sound where it really doesn't work. Um, it actually means something. It's phonetically accurate. Um, that's not biblical. That's just my opinion. But I really like this name. And we know it was good because he gave it. And he gave it because it, there's a meaning to it. And see how that's a display of God's grace? Fallen man, moments from the incident, is able to complete his task of naming all things and does so by giving a name to his beloved. Right after incident, we're talking moments from impact, he carries this task out. God's grace did not take from Adam his mind, his ability to carry out his work, or his love for his wife. In fact, we see these things all the more precious because of the fall. We see this more beautiful in sinful man, that despite his sin, that despite his fallenness, that despite his new nature, he carries this task out in fulfilling God's call for his life. Now let's consider the third aspect of this verse. It has to do with the name that Adam gave his wife. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, wait a minute. Eve at this point has not had any children. More so, he states it in the present tense. Did you catch that? It doesn't say she will be the mother of all living. It says she is the mother of all living. Now, how can a man, full of the creative power of God, with all of his accuracy and ability, use the wrong tense to describe his wife? Well, I would argue he knew exactly what he was doing. God has just promised pain through childbirth. He has also promised the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. What do both of these require to come to fulfillment? Children. Children are required to fulfill the spoken word of God. And so Adam names his wife mother of all living in a great act of faith in God that God's word will come true. He trusted God this much. And think about this. This is moments from not trusting God. This is moments from not listening to his word. This is moments from questioning who he is and what he says and what he promises Adam, in an act of faith and declaration of love for God and love for his wife, says, no, she is the mother of all living because God is a God who keeps his promises and does what he says he's going to do. What faith? One commentator says that this name given, uh, the name celebrates the survival of the human race and ultimately victory over death. By anticipating life, it commemorates the establishment of a new order. God was not giving up on Adam and Eve. In fact, 
faith in God in both fulfilling his creation mandate for Adam and then naming his wife life or mother of living demonstrates that the curse will be overcome. And it's so certain and it's so guaranteed and it's so absolute, it's stated in the present. She is, not will be, not we hope so, she is. Because that's how we should think about the God that we are talking about. When we talk about the promises of God, we can state them in the present. God is doing this. Now, how does this apply to us today? For starters, we must consider how blessed we are. We are sinful and we live in a sinful world. And yet God's mercy is new to us each and every morning. We are constantly affected by sin, but at the same time, we are blessed over and over by God's provision. Now, that's not to say that faith in God will all of a sudden make your life wonderful and grant you wishes and success. That's not what it's saying here. Adam would still work the ground with toil and sweat. Eve would still have pain in childbirth and desire to rule over her husband. Both would eventually die. That's not easy if, it, if you ask me. But what we are saying is that God sustained them or would sustain them through those hard times. The faith in God was enough to carry them through. And that's the same faith that you and I are called to have today. Our God is greater than our sin and the sin of the world. And by faith, he will see us through. Oh, how our lives would change if we would start speaking this way. Instead of asking, oh Lord, would you please do this, declaring it. Lord, you are good and you've declared that your people will come to you. So we trust God. Bring your people. Not will you or not please, but bring your people, God, because you've said you will do it. It's why we pray scripture. One of the safest things to do is pray what God has already said. God delights in hearing us pray his word to him. The second um, part of our text I want to emphasize this morning. So this talks about uh, faith and how God, a man's faith in God displays God's mercy and overcomes the doom of the curse. But secondly, we need to understand that God's grace covers the sinner's shame. And this is very important. If, if we don't understand grace, then we really miss it. So look with me at our, our second verse to see this. And I love this verse. This is, one of the, this is, this is fantastic. Um, the point that I, I want to make for you is that God's grace covers the sinner's shame. We're going to make it by saying, quite literally, the grace of God very literally covers the sinner's and their shame. See how it works? The point is God's grace covers sinner's shame, and what we read in the text is God covers the sinner's. It's right there. It is, it's, it's God's word being immediately applied. I, I love when this happens. This is so delightful. Adam and Eve, they made clothing with fig leaves to cover their nakedness. They did the best they could on a task they have never done before. But as we mentioned last week, um, they would have looked like little children stuffing all of their toys under a rug so that uh, you did not recognize uh, that they didn't clean their room. That's how ridiculous it would have looked to God to come and see his creation in fig leaves. They need help. They, they, they needed major help. 
And God, instead of letting them walk around in their ridiculous outfits that they made, um, which, by the way, wouldn't have provided any protection against the elements, one of the major reasons we wear clothing um, is to, um, to cover uh, parts of us that don't need to be exposed to the elements. God takes it upon himself and does way better than anything they could even do or imagine. And there's two implications of this text I don't want you to miss. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Commentator Alan Ross notes the first important factor here when you think about where did the clothes come from. He says this, It is to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creatures might be relieved. To us, life is cheap, but Adam recognized death as the punishment for sin. Man had to learn sin could not be covered by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed, but only by pain and blood and loss of life. From the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. God took the life of an innocent animal to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. This one act would demonstrate to them both how God would carry out his atoning work from here forward. It is only by the blood of the innocent that the guilty would be allowed to live. God is showing them right then and there that sin comes with a price and that price is heavy. But God is the one to pay it, not man. Man couldn't do it. Man's best attempt was fig leaves. God provided clothes. The second part of this passage that I, I don't want you to miss. So God takes life in demonstration of how he will ultimately save mankind. But the second thing has to do with the fact that he clothed, clothed them in the first place. The other times in scripture we see this language used, there's two places. One, uh, when, a, when a king is dressed, so a king is clothed in royal clothing. Also, secondly, the times that we see this in Scripture has to do when the priest put on their royal garments. So they were clothed in their royal vestments uh, when they were being prepared for their priestly duties. When we think about it in that way, what we conclude here, not only was God covering their sin, but God was also setting them apart. A king would put on his kingly garments to be set apart, a priest, the priestly garments to be set apart. And same here, God is saying, these are mine. Adam and Eve, you are mine. And to the rest of the world, you will be robed. You will be clothed. You will be different. You will be set apart because you belong to me. And so, in, in one way, this is a punishment for their sin and, and them having to see life be taken for them. But in another way, it is a declaration of God declaring what is his. God is saying, world... They are different. And both of these aspects are, are very important for us to understand today. Sin requires payment, and that payment is death. You and I deserve to make that payment. We have forfeited our lives out of a love of this world and the things of this world. And if you do not trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, then one day you will have a chance to make that payment. You will give your life. And you will suffer for all eternity for it, and rightly so. But if we rest in Jesus Christ today and every day, then that payment has been made for us. 
Once again, not by man, but by God. Jesus died that we may live. He gave up his righteousness to cover or clothe our iniquity. We are naked before God. But through Christ we are robed, set apart, and declared holy. You have been covered with the robes of a priest. That's what we have in Jesus. That's why the gospel is so important. The message that God began telling Adam and Eve in the garden finds its fulfillment in Christ. And here we are today living out the benefit and the blessing and the fulfillment of it. Now there is one final lesson we must understand from our passage. And that is how God protects man by preventing the extension of life. So look with me at our our final uh, few verses as we see how the story closes. Here we get a very rare conversation between members of the Trinity. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. And then nothing It's kind of an odd ending to the verse, isn't it? God recognizes that man has indeed learned the difference in the knowledge of good and evil. And this is one of the reasons we need to be leery of Satan. He was partially right in what he told Eve. This did in fact come true. But when God uses the phrase and when Satan uses the phrase, they mean two completely different things. When God talks about and understands the knowledge of good and evil, he does so in a righteous way, he does so in a holy way. When Satan talks about it and what Adam and Eve realized is um, fear and shame and terror as they now understand that they're not holy and they're not righteous and they're not good. And so while there is some truth, a little hint of truth in, in Satan's remarks, be very careful. Partial truths make the best lies. God in his infinite wisdom He recognizes that man cannot be mortal, immortal in this sinful state. It would be too cruel to let Adam and Eve live perpetually in this fallen condition. Therefore, there was only one conclusion to be had. And the way it's written, the awkwardness of that sentence is intentional. It's for you, the reader, to fill in that blank. Lest they eat of it forever... And then you find yourself going, he's going to kick them out of the garden. They're going to have to leave. You, you, you're meant to feel the weight of that decision of God. You're meant to feel the weight of what has to take place. We just spent chapters 1 through 3 talking about the beauty and wonder and glory of God's creation. Um, a lot of chapter 2 focused on the garden and how rich and full of life it is. And so this should hurt. You should, you should read this and go, oh, not the garden. Lord, why? Why send them out from there? You really should feel the weight of the decision being done. Because that's the only way we understand and appreciate what God is doing. They had to leave. Their sinful state could not be allowed to continue. And this leads us to a very uncomfortable conclusion that we would do well to remember. Death is a mercy of God. Death is a mercy of God. 
if God let Adam and Eve eat of the tree of eternal life, they would have been stuck in their sinful condition forever. Now, let me qualify what I mean when I say that. Um, But before I do, um, let's think about some things that God did. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. God sent man out of the garden. It's the first thing he does. He sends them out. It was God that drove them away. But it was not done out of spite or hate or punishment. It was so man would ultimately live. Secondly, God places a cherubim to watch and guard the garden lest man finds his way back in. And then thirdly, if that's not enough, God creates a flaming sword that eternally spins in all directions guarding the tree. Man would... (laughs) There is no way man is getting into that garden and getting into that tree. But we really do have to appreciate God's ultimate plan to see this as a blessing. God would redeem man through the death of Christ. If Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of eternal life and could not die, then Christ could not come and thus die. So to complete the plan of salvation, it became necessary for Adam and Eve to be sent out of the garden. They had to be able to die that Christ could also come and die. Or the plan of salvation would not work. If man was immortal, man would have been immortally doomed. And I say this admitting that sometimes God gives us hard mercies. They may not be easy to accept. But over time we may come to see how much of a blessing they are. I don't wish difficulty or hardship on any of you. But I do tell you. In case you're going through difficulty, God's grace grows sweetest in the fertile ground of trials and tribulations. You can look at the history and the life of the church and see that the church has blossomed greatest in times of hardship. And no, dear Christian, even if you're not given the benefit of seeing why God put you through that situation, know that it is good and it is for his glory. And maybe one day he will reveal it to us. I'm sure it was hard for Adam and Eve to leave the garden. Maybe they weren't thinking about why God was doing it. Maybe they wondered if God really cared. And yet we know God did. You and I today are beneficiaries of that decision made back then. I do hope you find this passage encouraging today. Faith in God, His never-ending grace, and kindness through hardship is what you and I need. Brothers and sisters, the days are only getting darker. The world is growing more and more intolerant of the people of God and the word of God. But as I heard a speaker say recently, oh, if they only knew how much the world needs us and our Christian beliefs. God will provide. We know this because he already has in his son, Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, Sometimes it is easy to read about the folly of those in the Bible. It's easy to see the sin of others. It becomes much harder, Lord, when we recognize that we too are sinners and that we sin in the same way and it's your mercy that is not recorded for us. Father, I pray that we would trust in you. Lord, your mercy is good to us as we trust in you by faith and your grace is poured out upon us, 
It overcomes this world and the situations that we face. But Lord, life is sometimes hard. And I I admit that, Father. And I know many here have gone through and are going through hard times. Lord, would you comfort them? We are blessed with the opportunity to see the conclusion of the story of Adam and Eve. We know that it leads ultimately to your son, and we are recipients of that. But for those who are going through hard situations, would you pour out your mercy and grace upon them? And if it be your will, give them a glimpse of what you are doing and the eternal work you are working in them. But if not, Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us faithful in you. Help us to see the full picture and to press on knowing that by faith in you we have life. You have clothed us, you have covered our nakedness, and you've called us sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, even though we're not very lovely. We pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.